Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a few notes. I want to remind you guys about our Amazon campaign. That's right. If you go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner right there in the middle of the homepage, you can actually help out veterans organizations. All you got to do, do your regular shopping as you normally would on Amazon, whether it's personal, whether it's business, whatever. Just click on that banner in the middle of the homepage of hazardground.com, take your directly to Amazon, do your shopping and we get a portion of the proceeds of what you spend and we donate that to one of the amazing veterans charities that you've heard here on the Hazard Ground podcast. We're also excited to announce that we have made our first donation from this campaign to one of the organizations you heard here on the Hazard Ground. Because you guys have gone to hazardground.com, clicked on that Amazon banner, and spent enough money, we were able to make a donation to Merging Vets and Players. That's MVP, Merging Vets and Players, an organization that you'll hear more about coming up in this week's episode. Also want to remind everybody that you can still get 15% off on our sponsors page on both Combat Flip Flops and Knife Country USA by using the code Hazard One. So go to our sponsors page on HazardGround.com, and Combat Flip Flops and Knife Country USA will both give you fifteen percent off at checkout by using the code Hazard One. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites: Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Keep up with what's going on on the show. And now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a retired Army Sergeant First Class. 13 combat deployments overseas as part of the 75th Ranger Regiment, the historic 75th Ranger Regiment, now working with a dynamic, disruptive organization called MVP Merging Vets and Players, one of the finest organizations and veterans organizations out there. He is Jeremy Tyndall on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeremy, welcome. Good to talk to you, brother. Hey, Mark. I appreciate you this morning uh, having me on and uh, just getting ready to to chat along and, and tell you my story. Well, we're excited to hear it. Uh, and, and for background, for those listening, Jeremy and I actually know each other fairly well as uh, we are both part of Merging Vets and Players, the Atlanta chapter here. And it's a, just an exciting organization. It's great to be a part of. Close ties with the NFL. If you haven't heard of it, people who know of MVP obviously know what they're all about, but certainly impacting and changing lives. But let's go all the way back to the beginning and start at the beginning of your career in the United States Army. How'd you get in? Why'd you sign up? And when'd you do it? So uh, I joined early in 98. Uh, at the time, I was uh, working in a machine shop uh, doing computer-aided machining. Uh, I was actually a subcontractor of Boeing making jet engine parts. So anybody out there that uh, wants to be leery about flying on a plane, it might be uh, something that I helped build. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, my family background was uh, mainly Navy. I have a grandfather who spent 32 years in the Navy, uh, and then my dad had did six years uh, actually prior to me even being born. But uh, growing up in San Diego, California, uh, I had a lot of Navy friends and the stereotypical, hey, my dad's a Navy SEAL. Um, that, that was part of my upbringing. So I, I knew a lot about the Navy and, and everything else growing up. 
and I wanted to do something different in my life. And this actually was constructed from a conversation that my grandfather and I had before he passed. And he said, you know, I did enough time for our entire family in the Navy. If you're ever going to join the service, do something that you're going to want to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be driven towards the Navy. So um, I, I was fairly successful in the machining career and uh, I was getting bored of it. And uh, I was almost 20 years old. So I, I hit up a recruiter and went And 13 days later. I found myself joining the Army, uh, dropped everything and headed to Fort Benning for uh, one site unit training out there. And I was on a contract to be an 11 Bravo straight leg infantryman heading to Hawaii. I was thinking nice. I was going to the promised land. <laughs> what, um, what did your parents say, by the way? Because, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic career shift. Did you talk to them about it ahead of time? Yeah, I kind of blindsided them with it. And my personality, uh, that, that's kind of how it is. Is I, I just, uh, I'll come up on a whim. And when I make my mind up, uh, I'm dead set on it. And I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So, uh, yeah, coming to my mom and dad, and uh, I actually worked with my dad in the machine shop, and I uh, got with him one night on a swing shift, and I said, hey, uh, I'm joining the Army. And he was just like, well, it was about time that uh, uh, this finally happened because I knew it was going to eventually happen one day. And then he said, you know, your mom's going to be pissed when she finds out. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, Why she? just kind of happened. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She She was – she was upset that I was going to be joining the army and moving away, but you know, well, later but, on in life, the the pride of of her son doing the things uh, for our country and, and just serving, uh, you know, finally took its place. You know, we, we talked to a lot of vets on on the pod who signed up after nine eleven. You signed up before nine eleven. Was your mom mad because you were just leaving home? I mean, it wasn't like at that time in ninety eight ninety nine there was any imminent threat of war. I mean, for crying out loud, we couldn't have been in a more peaceful place. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in the 98 is around the time that Bosnia was starting to rise. Right, off. yeah. So, I mean, there was no conflicts or anything going on. So, yeah, it was probably just the the motherly upset that her uh, son is taking that drastic move um, and going into the unknown that the military provides. Now, why the infantry? Uh, well, it sort of came with the contract. So I was offered several different jobs. Um, you would think a machinist and, or a welder would have been at the top of that. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you would figure, but uh, it was more, it was more late on the line as uh, Hawaii was being offered. Ah, there you go. So yeah, they they uh, the recruiters in the MEP station they uh, they dragged me in on that one, and uh, so things ended up changing, uh, and my dynamic uh, took a whole one eighty while I was in basic training. Okay. So, uh, my my mom actually has a friend who was married to a army master sergeant at the time, uh, and he was a uh, a West Point instructor. And uh, after talking with my parents and finding out that I joined the military, you know, he asked the, the probing questions: What's he doing? What MOS is he going into? Uh, and they found out that I was just going to Hawaii as a straight infantryman. And he said, uh, "You know, your son." Uh, would not want to do that. And so he used his channels and the powers that be, and through asking a series of questions on one of our five-minute phone calls in basic training, I ended up telling him that the uh, the infantry training brigade commander was uh, somebody that he had served with. 
And lo and behold, we're on our FTX. We're getting ready to wrap up uh, infantry training, go get our blue cords. And my drill sergeant comes out and throws my mail at me. And he's screaming and cussing at me. Who the hell do you know, private? And I was just like, what the hell is this dude's problem? (laughs) And uh, yeah, as he's telling me, uh, when we get back from the FTX, we got to get you cleaned up because you're going to have lunch with the Infantry Training Brigade commander uh, at the time was uh, Colonel uh, Abraham Turner. So, you know, fast forward, get through the, uh, the ruck march. We get our blue court ceremony done up. And uh, I go to the, uh, the officer's club on Fort Benning, you know, the, the land of the unknown from those on Sand Hill. And uh, they, the drill sergeant takes me over there and I sit down, big, huge black gentleman, you know, Fulbert Colonel. And, uh, you know, he introduces himself and he's like, I'm the ITB commander, Colonel Turner. And a friend of yours, uh, Jim, that I'm really good friends with, we served together and taught in West Point together. Uh, tells me that uh, um, we need to have a talk. So I sat and I had lunch, and at the end of the lunch, the uh, the colonel was sliding uh, amended orders to me to send me on to airborne school in or out to the 75th Ranger Regiment. Wow. Now, this yeah. is the, so, um, for those who, who aren't military, don't know, the 75th Ranger Regiment is the most elite, you know, Ranger unit in all of the army and it's not an easy get like there are guys who want to go there who jump through lots of hoops to get an assignment there after years of just being a regular infantryman and so to get that as a private it's a pretty big damn deal absolutely and then you know further on in my career um uh, which I'll, I'll touch a little bit on uh, even joining and enlisting in the army uh it, it's minimized uh slots that are allocated for recruiters uh, to give individuals coming into the army uh, for the 75th Ranger Regiment. Right. Uh, usually comes with, you know, some type of a bonus or, or whatever else, uh, depending on the needs of the regiment. But, uh, yeah, after that, I uh, found myself in airborne school. And at the end of airborne school, uh, it's like the gates of hell open up and, you know, uh, Satan himself in the form of, three big burly men with black berets on at this time, you know, the, the army hadn't uh, circumvented over to the black beret yet. Right. And, and, you know, these guys are approaching the formation after airborne graduation and they just start yelling and screaming and cussing up a storm to get your shit and get next to the freaking the, the big, uh, like rider box truck. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know, you're carrying all your stuff as a private And everybody's in a frantic, don't know what the hell is going on. And you're thinking, all right, cool. I get to carry these three big duffel bags and throw them on this truck. Nope, that's not the issue. (laughs) You get to run from airborne school to an unknown location, which is now the Ranger Indoctrination Program uh, in 1998, uh, and while carrying everything that you own. (laughs) And so you have these big burly rangers standing in the back of this open box truck, yelling and screaming at you, making you want to quit. And when you quit, you finally get to put your bags in the truck and you're basically going to see your ass, uh, you know, going somewhere else other than going to the 75th. Right. Now you didn't know this, you didn't know this going through it. So what's going through your mind? Uh, 
honestly, it's uh, what the fuck did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> but did you ever did you think about quitting? Did you ever think about what am I doing? Just take the damn bags. Where are we going? Kind of deal. Like almost practicality, you know. No, so a lot of my ranger knowledge um, was improved throughout basic training because, you know, through all the Army cadences and we had rangers uh, that were in the infantry basic training as the drill sergeants uh, and most of our chain of command were all rangers going through infantry training. Um, They they, they clued me in on what to expect, but uh, I don't think I ever – really had the notion of, man, I want to quit while I'm going through all of this. Right. Um, and just knowing that at the end was that prestigious unit and uh, what everything was talked about, you know, the camaraderie, uh, doing all the really high-speed stuff and getting to shoot all the freaking guns in, in the Army's arsenal and getting to blow shit up. So it was the, the cool factor kind of took over for me and knowing that that was at the end of the line. Gotcha. Okay, so obviously you don't throw your bags in the back of the truck. You don't quit. You go through Ranger Indoctrination Program. Kind of give me the next couple of steps of your career. Okay, so uh, get done with uh, with RIP and head straight over to uh, Savannah, Georgia and become a member of the 1st Ranger Battalion. Okay. Uh, from there, you know, just the, uh, the nonstop high-intensity training that we would do, constantly going somewhere, constantly jumping into some type of uh, training environment. And, uh, you know, move up through the ranks. I tried my first attempt at Ranger School in uh, April of 99, right after a 30-day rotation in JRTC down in uh, New Orleans, Fort Polk. And uh, uh, ended up getting sent home in uh, the second phase. Um, I mean, there's really nothing I could do about it. But uh, was injury? going back. Uh, no, it was, uh, through peer evaluations. Gotcha. Okay. So being, being a private, uh, and it was a, a strong, uh, infantry officer, basic course, uh, heavy class. Right. So a lot of the new IOBC students were there. And so being a ranger private, uh, yeah, I had an entire squad of some IOBC cadets and, uh, one SF guy. So it was first my ranger buddy, who was another PFC, and then myself got peered out in the second phase, and they sent us home. Okay. Uh, go back about 13 months later, end up graduating in uh, December of 2000, and get my coveted ranger tab. Okay, so now, now, now you're officially official inside the regiment. Correct. Must have been a good feeling. It was, absolutely. Um, you know, now I get to... Uh, create the havoc that was put onto me and, you know, do the, the stereotypical, I'm a tab specialist, tab spec four, and, you know, join those little mafias and smoking privates and, uh, kind of, you know, doing the, the, the hazing thing is what everybody likes to call it. But I mean, it's that rite of passage. You don't just go to a 75th Ranger regiment and everything is, you know, cakes and cookies. It's, uh, it's, it's hard. It's meant to be hard, and it's meant to push everybody to that next level. Uh, now, of course, I wasn't doing anything stupid, you know, um, beating people with, like, broomsticks or whatever. But, I mean, just the excessive amounts of exercise and everything else that was the typical uh, smoke sessions that, you know, we sure. would put our guys through. Fast forward, where are you on 9-11? What are you guys doing? So I had uh, – <laughs> Recently got married about six months prior, 
and I was dropping my wife off at the ranger gym and the majority of the battalion was spread out amongst uh, Turkey hungry area. Uh, one of the companies was off and then another company was uh, on another training deployment. So I was back in the rear because the very next day I was supposed to be going to uh, then PLDC primary leadership development course, which okay. now is what WLC warrior leader course. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, I dropped my wife off at the uh, Ranger gym, uh, just like our typical day. And then I was heading over to battalion headquarters to go to our operations and grab my PLDC orders, walk in a staff duty and, and the staff duty and his uh, runner were sitting there just in awe. And I was like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, do you see in this stuff? And I was like, well, what, what movie are you guys watching? <laughs> and they're like, no, this shit's live. And I was like, really? So I was sitting there watching, you know, the, the what North Tower got hit. And then right at that point, South Tower got hit. And, you know, I'm sitting there witnessing the next plane crashing. Uh, and I said, oh, shit, I know what's going to happen now. Run down to the S3. I grabbed my orders. And I hauled ass, uh, hauled ass back over to the, um, the ranger gym and there's my wife and she's just standing on a treadmill, bawling her eyes out. And she says, you guys are going to be leaving soon. <laughs> it's amazing that, that you knew that even as a, a young E4 at the time, um, yep. you know, and, and your wife knew, I mean, I guess the whole world knew it. I, I, you know, not that it was that long ago. I mean, kind of, we are coming up on 20 years here in a couple of years of this whole thing. God. But yep. I mean, it just, you know, as a 22 year old kid, sometimes it's hard to grasp the gravity of what really goes on in the world. Uh, but uh, you guys are with the op temple that you train. Obviously, this was, you know, uh, being the tip of the spear, so to speak. You knew this is what was next. Absolutely. And, you know, it even resonated down into our families. I mean, you, you can't talk to any ranger uh, and their significant other without them saying, yeah, we knew exactly what you guys were going to be doing. I mean, my wife's sitting there watching it on the news in a ranger gym of all places and just knowing her husband's lifestyle and what they train to do every day. She knew you right. guys are the key. You're the key benefactors of what's about to happen because uh, our country obviously is being attacked and we're going to go to war with somebody. Right. So you end up in total on 13 combat deployments. How quickly do you get to your first one? Okay, so my very first one, uh, I actually ended up deploying with Alpha Company, uh, First Ranger Battalion, as an attachment. Um, so my seating into the NCO Corps kind of came, uh, removing me out of the infantry lineman's job. And uh, I ended up, uh, through my first sergeant, he said, you know, hey, you're going to go be an NCO, but hey, we need you somewhere else in the battalion. So I ended up going to uh, become an ammo guy. So I ended up doing that job for a little bit. And, uh, you know, one of my first sergeants said to me, he's like, Hey, you're going to go and you're deploying. And I said, all right. So did I you know myself, where, uh, well at the time, no, I mean, they just, they were kind of giving little bits of Intel, um, uh, around the middle of December. And then when everything was said and done, we packed up and, uh, day after Christmas, 2001, uh, we were getting on planes to, to head over Afghanistan, we, obviously. Well, yeah, we, we knew we were going to Afghanistan, but we didn't know 
like exactly where we're going to be. And they basically said, Hey, when we get to where we're going, that's when we're going to tell you. And obviously, you know, once we got in the air, that's when they said, Hey, we're going to go to a remote location. We're not going to be actually in Afghanistan yet. Uh, and then we're going to be ripping out with uh, third range battalion. Okay. And so your thought process here is what, like, what are you thinking? Uh, I was thinking at the time, uh, I, I was kind of re- regretting uh, the change of job and that I needed to be in the line with my guys. Uh, but then again, I wouldn't be given the situation uh, that, I, that I was in had I not left because I, I was in Charlie Company 175 for you know the first years of my career. And then taking that move and going over to our HHC element to be an ammo guy. Um, you know, it, it changed a lot for me. It put me into a situation where here I am, we train every day to go to combat and I'm getting to go to combat, mm-hmm. be it as an ammo guy, be it as whatever. So, I mean, there, there was going to be opportunities told, Hey, you're, you're going to go up to the battlefield and you're, you're going to go on the front lines as much as you can, but you know, it's going to be in a different capacity. So clearly no fear then. No. Okay. Never once worried about what combat was going to be like. Never once thought about, you know, the, the meeting your maker, so to speak, or any of that. No, not really a fear. More of a uh, uh, kind of just anticipating what it was going to be like. I was uh, I was more anxious because, I mean, some of my leaders had prior uh, served in Panama and Grenada. So, I mean, getting getting to be raised by those rangers – that were in, you know, conflict before it it was already understood and and the upbringing that we went through. Yeah. It might've been torturous and it might've been hell and physically it hurt, but I knew the guy on the left and right, no matter where I am, I I, I know I'm going to be good. Okay. Uh, So you get on the ground in Afghanistan. What's the op tempo like? Again, it's early 2002, right? So uh, you're on the ground. How much fighting are you seeing? What's going on? So the remote, uh, the remote location that we were at, uh, there was zero fighting. <laughs> like we weren't even, we weren't even in the country of Afghanistan. We we're in a remote island, um, on an airstrip. Uh, it was our staging base basically. And, uh, we got there and, you know, immediately all the third bat guys, you know, they're talking about, you know, the, the experiences, uh, some of them chatting about jumping onto objective Rhino, which happened in early October. Um, and then just, you know, stories. So we immediately started pushing our elements up to do their relief in place. Uh, and, you know, so I had to get there and start changing out ammo and start counting and doing all that stuff. And uh, I started getting antsy. I was like, when am I going to go? When am I going to go? So, you know, a couple of weeks have gone by and then here I am. I'm finding myself. It's already March. And, uh you know, that's when, uh, you know, our, our first casualties had actually taken place uh, in the beginning of March for the, the Battle of uh, Takugar. All right. So and, and Takugar is a battle we've talked a lot about here on the Hazard Ground. Um, and obviously, if you go back and listen to Nate's self story, Nate was a key player uh, in the Battle of Takugar. Uh, but when you take those first casualties, um, does your view and, and your emotional mindset change? about everything that's going on? Yes. How? So 
I was actually uh, a jock NCO, you know, Joint Operations Center NCO. Uh, and so I, I was constantly in our talk and in our jock. And when all of the events with uh, Neil Roberts went down, him falling out of the Chinook, uh, you know, the whole entire base and everything that we were on was was alerted. So gathering up all of the command teams and everybody getting in their positions and we're watching, you know, live uh, predator feed of all this stuff going down. And it was very interesting because I'm like, man, this is this is great. This is like a, a live action video and I get to watch. And as the uh, the first chalk for the QRF of Rangers comes in and it was like, all right, they're on the ground. It looks like everything's fine. And then you start seeing machine gun fire. And you see uh, an RPG, you know, penetrate uh, the side of the of the Chinook, and luckily it didn't like blow up, you know, your 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 typical movie fashion. But I mean, now all of a sudden the uh, the rotors are starting to wind down, and it looks like they're coming to a stop. And as Rangers are starting to exit the back of the aircraft, and then you see that that moment in your life that it's like oh shit, this is real. When it happens, that's when your whole perspective on life and everything, it just changes. Because as two Rangers are walking out and then the third guy walks out and he, uh, you know, falls face first into the snow and then doesn't move. And you just, your, your whole perspective changes. And then you fixate on that. Um, and then now you're starting to reel. It's like, well, who was that? You know, and of course, like casualty calling back and everything else starts to happen. And, you know, they try to keep close hold on on information about that. But, uh, yeah, it, it definitely changes your emotions. Everything take over uh, in that instance. And, and I wasn't even on the hilltop. So I, I could only imagine what those guys are going through. But what emotions are you feeling? So you, you watch the body fall and, you know, you, you know, it's somebody, you know, but you don't know who, I mean, is it, oh my God, or is it, I need to get up there? Is it like, what, give me some of the emotions you're feeling. Well, it, it's, it's every bit of them. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, where, where's my kit? Why can't I get there? You know, why am I not there? I mean, just every emotion filling your body and, and your mind of who is it? Holy crap. What, what exactly happened? You know, where, where the hell is the enemy fire coming from that, you know, engaged that person and got them? So, I mean, you're just you're, you're overwhelmed with the different emotions. And then definitely the, well, who is it? And then it's like just eating at you until you finally find out who it is. And then, you know, come to find out that it's a guy that uh, just a few months prior uh, that you call a really good friend of yours, you're in PLDC with. Uh, and so... Yeah, when they started uh, broadcasting the names, and one of the first ones that came out was Mark Anderson. Mark Anderson, really great dude. He was one of our uh, tab spec fours. He was a machine gunner, and when when he got shot up, you know, he didn't even get to leave the aircraft. And then you're like, okay, well, and then you get other names, and they say, you know, uh, Matt Commons. Okay, hey, the the Ranger Private got killed. That sucks. And then when you find out that one of the key team leaders on the ground. Brad Kroos, really good friend of mine. I had just been in PLDC, you know, two and a half months prior or three and a half months prior to this. 
and, and having a, a great time being Rangers in a conventional Army setting of PLDC and just completely, you know, dominating everything in that uh, Army training. Um, and, you know, now it's now he's dead. And it's just like your 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 heart just sinks. When you watch that whole battle unfold, I mean, did you? Would you? It, it was twenty hours. I mean, it was it was twenty straight hours of those guys stuck on that mountaintop uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, did you stay for the whole thing? Did you watch the whole thing? I was there from the time that they started alerting until the time that they freaking left that hill. Okay, so when the initial. Uh, and shock isn't the right word, but when, you know, after you realize bodies have fallen and, and your fellow brothers are, 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 you know, their lives are lost, um, but you're continuing to watch this thing unfold, take me kind of through the progression of being able to watch that whole thing because, you know, they had made other attempts to try to get those guys off the mountaintop and they were all unsuccessful and eventually they made the decision, hey, we're not sending anybody else up there. You guys are just stuck until we can get some more air, which probably won't be until tomorrow morning kind of deal. So uh, as this thing is unfolding, what are you thinking and feeling? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing that I thought was, why aren't we? Why aren't we doing the things that we can uh, to get people up there? You know, and of course, this is uh, maybe just an ignorance and not knowing uh, all of the command decisions and, and how they're made and, you know, their thought processes on it. And then the other ones, too, is, you know, sometimes – uh, in those t- particular situations, you're just your hands are tied. The capabilities of aircraft. I mean, they're at, a, at an altitude that are already pushing the limits of, of military helicopters. Uh, and we didn't really realize that at the time, because this is the very first instance that it's a major mountainous terrain. And we're already pushing the limits on aircraft getting them out there. Uh, but I mean, you know, the the whole perspective of that getting the watch as you know neil roberts you know is initially on the ground and crawling around and trying to fight for his life and then chapman getting on the ground and him crawling around and throwing grenades and then you know them killing him uh and then as the the first shot gets on uh on the hilltop and gets shot up you see your rangers buddies you know getting killed and then just hearing all the commotion of the battle unfold is just it was unreal and then you know the heroism too that was displayed that day i mean nate self and his uh and his uh air force uh tactical advisor uh kevin uh kevin vance i mean unbelievable this dude he's calling in f-16s f-15s and dropping 500 pound bombs like within danger close and danger close, I mean, you know, it was always that given rule, don't call in bombs, it's close. But he was doing amazing things that day. Uh, and I really think that he saved everybody else that was still alive on that hilltop that day. Wow. When you think back to that, what, what stays with you the most? Well, I mean, you know, being that I'm at my house and uh, we're, we're talking about this whole thing, uh, I, I, I look on the, the Battle of Takugar, the, uh, the rendering that, uh, that Don Stivers had done, and uh, it, it just – every day it's, it's with me. So um, it depicts, you know, the F-15s flying over and dropping J-dams, and, you know, the casualty on the ground, and you got the, the ETAC 
you know, behind a, a rock calling in the fire and you got guys moving to contact and you got guys taking a bunker. I mean, it's it, every, every bit of it is all depicted in this one uh, portrayal and every day I live it. So when that deployment ends and you go back home and you're, you're, you're down three of your brothers, what's that feeling like? I mean, are you, are you ha- I mean, obviously you're happy to be home, but you know, you've left something behind. Well, the, the, the first one is, Hey, we're glad, we're glad that we're coming home and we don't think that this is going to ever have to, uh, you know, turn into something else. And the, the hopes that, uh, us being relieved by second Ranger battalion, that this would be it, you know, we'd catch, catch whoever, you know, catch, uh, Osama bin Laden at the time, uh, and we'd be done and over with. Never in, in a million years would any of us would have think, hey, this is going to go on for the next 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and having, I would probably say 15 or 50% of the uh, Ranger Regiment having uh, at least six deployments, you know, to each person uh, and, you know, an even smaller portion having multiple like 10 or 15, you know, it just it, it carries on and on, but um, being home and being back with family and everything else, it was great. But then that that thing in the back of your mind is we have one more thing that we got to do, and that was having our memorial. Um, so putting the entire battalion into a chapel uh, in downtown Savannah, um, and, and having the ceremony and everything, it was just. Uh, it, it, it's that last thing in your mind that you don't ever want to do because within the Ranger Regiment, when we have a fallen comrade, you know, he's, he's memorialized for the rest of their lives that they gave within our lives. So we call him our airborne Ranger in the sky. Well, for mine, when I first got to the battalion, uh, it was James Markwell. And he was a PFC that got killed in, in uh, Panama. And, you know, every day it was like, I'm doing an extra push-up for my Airborne Ranger in the sky. Or, you know, everything was to pay homage to the Airborne Ranger in the sky. Well, now my one of my good friends is my Airborne Ranger in the sky. And that was something that was very hard to swallow at first. Did you, did you break down at any point? I mean, did you cry during the memorial service? Did, did it all come out, or is this something that – took you years to kind of really face uh yeah up front i mean most everybody does i I know i did um i I, i'm an emotional person so i mean i i did Uh, i did uh on several occasions you know and i ask you that i mean you and i again you and i know each other for those listening so i I, you know you and i have shared some emotional thoughts and and some some stories together you know personal things that we've both been through and so you know I, i feel like i can ask you that without any reservation but you yeah. know, for, for those listening, it, it, we have talked to people who just they get they get kind of in a zone and they block everything out and they they don't face the emotions and it, it all kind of resurfaces later on down the road. And, you know, we've touched on a little bit how much still stays with you. But go back to those moments when you were going through all that. Uh, it, it, was it as tough then as it is now? I, it, it's tough every day. It, it, it was as tough. Um losing them up front and then, you know, finally realizing, uh, in our theater memorials that we did, 
Uh, it was very tough. It was very emotional. Um, I, I wish I knew uh, how some of these guys can, you know, desensitize themselves from it. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, because, you know, do you just have like no heart at all or are you just uh, so used to, to seeing death or being around it that you've kind of just, you know, desensitized yourself? That's a mystery to me. But, yeah, I, I haven't I have an emotional heart and losing those guys. Uh, it, it was a tough time for me. And then, of course, going on later on, uh, you know, through deployment two, deployment three, uh, the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003, you know, deployment four. And then here we are. I think it was uh, like my fifth or sixth deployment. And we hadn't lost anybody. Now, we sustained some casualties. That guy's, you know, take some bullet wounds. Good friend of mine, uh, uh, Lee Crouch, you know, he got shot through his hip. And, uh, you know, we thought that he was going to uh, die. But luckily, we have the best trained medics uh, that the Army could, you know, put together. And they, they save his life. Um but then, uh, you know, our, our next casualty comes around and it's like, man, here it is all over again. Uh, and then you go another deployment and then now, now there's another casualty. And then you start thinking, what is it that we're doing wrong? Or is the enemy just getting that much better? Because you know, for a while there, the, you know, Taliban and all that stuff in, in Afghanistan, there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, intense engagements so they must have like consolidated and done some kind of like train up or whatever and increased their their abilities against us. Because then, if it, you know, the eventual we started taking more casualties and, you know, now that we know it, we're like six casualties deep, eight casualties deep. Now we're 10 casualties deep. Uh, so those. Those emotional moments are, are finding its way into first range battalion quite often. Do you get frustrated? I mean, do, do you feel like at some point in time you, where, where the losses are too much to bear? Yeah, at, at times, and, and at times it's the frustration turns into uh, why are we still here? Why are we still doing all this? Uh -huh. um, you know, and, and it's kind of clouding the what is the real mission of being here. Talk to me about the invasion of Iraq that you were part of, um, differences between Afghanistan, what was it like? Uh, because, you know, as much as the, the common individual says, oh, it's the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's all the same. They are vastly different places and vastly different battles in the way that you fight just because of mostly because of the terrain. But um, what was your role in the invasion? So uh, at that time, I had uh, actually circumvented back over to Charlie Company uh, first Ranger Battalion, uh, and I, I was uh, still in a ammo uh, uh, capacity, uh, and then I also took on other jobs because we didn't have any chemical guys. A lot of the uh, the infantry line units, they're self-sustained. If you don't have a particular MOS, um, you you get an infantry guy to fill it in. So unfortunately, yeah, I got thrown as a chemical guy as well. So I'm having to uh, put together all the chemical suits because the fear of, you know, WMDs and the knowledge of Saddam Hussein using chemical warfare in the past, uh, it was real. 
And yeah, it so, was real going in. Funny how after we got there, we realized that was the furthest thing from any of the threats that we were going to deal with in the course yes. of uh, n- nearly nine years of war there. Everybody, exactly. both deployments I went to Iraq, you brought your chemical stuff. It was packed in a tough box and you never took it out once. And then you turned it back in when you got back. It never once came into play. Oh, it was worse for us because <laughs> we're, we're in a remote location at an airfield, you know, and... and Every day, it's like uh, we're we're wearing our chemical suit instead of wearing our our desert BUs, and so <laughs> a lot of our guys, you know, just having to wear that suit day in and day out, it was like, okay, these are getting nasty. Uh, I don't think these are <laughs> effective suits anymore. But that was our daily wear, right? Because we were thinking, you know, hey, this threat is imminent and it's going to happen, and then it never does, right? Right. Um, but yeah, the the differences of Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were were very very different. You get to Afghanistan, uh, you know, Third Ranger Battalion had already been there, and so things were set uh, set up. Uh, internet capabilities, some phone capabilities were established. So you get there, and it's like, well, you know, I can jump on the internet and I can check emails and I can send it. Hey, I love you. You know, nothing offset, nothing where you're at. And I can, you know, provide some communication with my uh, with my new wife. Get to Iraq. Yeah, it was like 110 days. And then I finally get a, an opportunity to take, uh, you know, one of our uh, uh, cell phones that we travel with and, and make a quick phone call and say, hey, I'm coming home in like a couple days. I can't tell you exactly when, but I'll be home soon. And to hear your wife crying on the other end of the line, it's like, You've been gone for 110 days, no communication whatsoever. And it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> In the middle of a desert. Yeah, right. So, yeah, quite different. Tell me about July 19, 2003. Um, you were not in a combat zone, but uh, you sustained a you know life-threatening injury. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the typical Ranger fashion, if you're not deployed in combat, you're training as if you're in combat. So... Uh, elements of uh, Charlie Company, uh, 1st Ranger Battalion, we went to uh, South Africa. Um, went and did a 30-day rotation to train with the South African National Defense Force. And, uh, you know, we're doing live fire exercises and everything with them. And, and July 19th came up. We were supposed to do a, a foreign wings exchange where we either jump with their equipment and their instruction Um and we do a combined effort, and we jump in, and everybody changes out wings. They get American-style jump wings, and then we get South African jump wings. So we were uh, we were jumping their aircraft, their chutes, uh, and their jump masters were pushing us out the door. I'm the uh, the first bird, and I am the last jumper on the left door, and. Uh, when I exit the aircraft, I immediately get into an entanglement with another jumper. Oh, man. And uh, so uh, I'm completely entangled in some, some uh, suspension lines. We're riding one canopy down to the ground. And uh, I come in basically backwards in a type of an L shape. And I smack my ass and uh, bro- broke my lower back. Come to find out that, uh, you know, Normal rate of descent is like 20, 22 feet per second. We were close to 80 oh, at man. the time of uh, impact from what the uh, the drop zone uh, survey team was telling us. Did you know the guy you were entangled with or he was a South African guy? 
no, he was he was one of our uh, our riggers that was attached to us at the time. Okay. Did yeah. you feel like when you were entangled? Did, did you know on the way down like this is going to end up bad? Uh, not until the last couple seconds. I, I was trying to uh, do the 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 airborne uh, school technique of you know riding myself and uh, working myself down to the lower jumper if you're too too entangled. But uh, we were jumping into some pretty nasty weather. It was like 25 and 35 mile an hour gusts. We were jumping into a valley, so it was just uh, that much more amplified. Uh, and the weather and everything just made it horrible. Um, and then my reserve parachute had ended up uh, deploying, and it got wrapped around my legs. And that's why uh, I ended up you know, in an L shape, because my reserve parachute actually pulled my legs out in front of me. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so I ended up in a hospital for uh, about nine days there in, in South Africa, and then uh, I flew home with the, the main body element and uh, took a, a couple of years to uh, recover from it. What were your injuries? Uh, so I sustained uh, several compression, compression fractures of my vertebrae. I think I crushed uh, my T10, 11, and 12 vertebrae and bulged a bunch of my discs. Man. Yeah. When, when that happened, I mean, did you think that your career in the military was over? Uh, I knew right then it was over. How hard was that yeah. to deal with? Uh, I, I still to this day fight it. it. It it didn't remove me from the 75th Ranger Regiment right away. Uh, I, I I can't say enough how much I thank uh, the, the command team at the time, you know, all my command teams, I mean, my, my battalion commander and command sergeant major, uh, you know, commander was, uh, uh Colonel, uh, Mike Kershaw at the time and, uh, Sergeant major, uh, Harold Hans. they come by the, uh, the hospital almost daily and their drivers, you know, they, they'd come in they'd say, Hey, whatever Tyndall wants, you know, get it for them. And, you know, of course I didn't want to eat the bullshit, uh, mutton that they had in our hospital. <laughs> so they would go in the local pop and they would, you know, grab uh, McDonald's or whatever and, and bring it back because uh, our food over there is horrible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, having your battalion command team that's over there with you show up and show their concern that you are injured on a daily basis was was pretty overwhelming. Uh, and then, you know, my uh, my command team at the time, uh, it was Captain Jack Rich. And uh, first sergeant Mike Ferrucci, uh, who was uh, he, he's a sergeant major for the 82nd Airborne right now, uh, moving up to I Corps. Uh, I mean, they're they're just as great. And they sat me down after we got home, and hey, we're gonna get you in physical therapy. We're gonna take care of you. Oh, and don't worry, you're not leaving. We're gonna take care of you first, and then figure out from there. It moved me into my next job, which. Uh, for my therapy portion of my career, uh, they moved me over to one of the S, S shops. I worked in the Intel shop and I just, I, I did admin stuff and, uh, I got engrossed with a lot of people. I met all the brand new Rangers and stuff coming to the battalion every month. Um, just getting to know everyone, which then in turn, uh, landed me into the job that I ended up, uh, retiring out of the army as. So I ended up changing my MOS after that injury because I knew I wasn't going to be uh, a good infantry ranger anymore. Uh, 
uh, Sergeant Major at the time, Chris Hardy, he had offered and said, hey, we're losing our career counselor. Uh, and you've been here almost seven years. You know a lot of people. you got a lot of good rapport with everybody. We'd like to offer you a job. At the time, I was looking at getting out of the Army. And uh, uh, a couple of job offers coming in to, to get some really good money. Uh, but I didn't want to give up my career because at the end of a career, I knew there was like the golden ticket, you know, that, hey, I got to get a, a retirement check for the rest of my life. Right. My family and I will have health care, uh, you know, until we die. So, I mean, there there was that that I was looking forward to after having a 32-year veteran of, of the Navy and my grandfather. I mean, my grandmother turns 100 on March 1st, and she still lives off of my grandfather's wow. uh, military. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know the benefits at the end of the road, and I didn't want to give it up. So he gave me a, a two-week little uh, hiatus to kind of just piggyback with the career counselor who was a friend of mine at the time. And uh, Kyle and I, we sat down, and he said, hey, I'm going on to be a warrant officer. I really think that, you know, you'd be the best fit for this. So I took it on. I ended up reenlisting for uh, for six years. And the Sergeant Major was like, all right, well, we're going to take care of you even more. You're going to go overseas, and we're going to give you an opportunity to reenlist overseas so you can get your, your money tax-free. And I was like, well, shit, that's even better. <laughs> so, yeah, I jump on a, a rotator over to Afghanistan. I hang out for a little while. I get to reenlist. I get my bonus tax-free. I come home. I take on my new venture, and uh, from there – uh, I stayed in the battalion for a few more years, and then uh, not being known of it, uh, in the conventional army on the career counselor side, uh, one of my uh, mentors in the career counselor field said, you got to get out in the big army, man, because nobody knows you. It's awesome that you do real great things in the Ranger Regiment, but if you're ever wanting to get promoted to the next level, you got to go out and you got to expand your portfolio and go to the big army, So, which I did. Was it hard to leave the regiment? Uh, yes. Why? Because that was my livelihood. It, it was my, you know, my day in and day out. There was never a time that I wasn't saturated around my Rangers. Uh, I even still to this day, even though I've been, uh, removed from the Ranger Regiment for over a decade, um, I, I, I still connect. I mean, even last night at, uh, at our Merging Vets and Players event, I meet a guy from 3rd Ranger Battalion. And we we're just going down the line. Oh, do you know this guy? Hey, do you know this guy? Oh, man, I grew up under this guy. Holy shit, you know this guy. And it's just like I, I have to stay connected with Rangers uh, or I just I don't have any meaning in my life anymore. You know, the, the, the years you spent in the regiment, you, you characterize as the absolute best, but, you know, worst moments are there. Um, how do you balance that? How, how do you stay happy about the best moments and what are the worst moments do to you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I just, like I said, I stay saturated with my guys, um, in any way, shape or pot, you know, form that I can. Uh, I, I live in Augusta, Georgia and, uh, I, I created a, uh, a Ranger slash special forces breakfast, you know, that we throw on every once in a while. Um, anytime that I, you know, can go to a special event and, and give tickets away, you know, I, the first people I'm calling is my Ranger buddies. Um, so, I mean, just staying engaged with them. I, I'll, I'll give a text to a guy just out of the blue and be like, Hey man, what are you doing? 
just to stay connected. Um, but the bad times, I mean, everybody has KIA bracelets. So, I mean, if you just give it the time to reflect and think about it and not let it overwhelm you, uh, it's easier to deal with than instead of, uh, you know, letting it bottle up and then just one day kind of exploding inside you and then just completely overwhelming you. So, I, I, like I said, I, I reflect on Taco Gar every day of my life because it's in my living room on my wall. Uh, you know, and I pay, I pay homage to these guys every day. Do you stay in touch with some of their families? Uh, so one of the family members that I do stay connected with, uh, actually has a little bit of significance in my household. Um, so, uh, June 1st, 2010, uh, Ranger, uh, Doc John Penny, he was killed. Well, during the same time frame that he was leaving this world, I was bringing my daughter into this world. And so... Uh, just the, the thought of my daughter being born on the same day that a ranger buddy that I knew, um, uh, it impacts me, but, uh, his mom, uh, she does a lot of great things within our community and within the gold star, uh, community. So, uh, I, I stay in touch with her, uh, as best as possible. And just a lot of numerous, uh, rangers that stay in touch with her. But, uh, yeah, Sue, Sue Penny is one that I, I do touch base with uh, on occasions just to, to keep up that interaction. All right, let's transition to merging vets and players. Um, and, and that's how you and I ended up getting connected. Um, MVP as it's, you know, shorthand known was created by Jay Glazer, who is a NFL uh, insider analyst for Fox sports and Nate Boyer, who is also a guest on the hazard ground podcast. I think he was our third or fourth guest ever, actually, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can go back and listen to that episode as well. But Nate is well known for uh, his work with Colin Kaepernick on the kneeling during the anthem. And uh, he's gone on to other things in Hollywood. He's big time now. But uh, anyway, so Nate and Jay created this organization uh, because they saw the commonality in people transitioning out of the military and athletes transitioning out of their playing careers back into normal life. And you realize that, you know, uh, there's a lot of, of similarities between the two. And so Merging Vets and Players was born. Um, they currently have four chapters across the United States, one of them here in Atlanta. And I was fortunate enough um, to be brought in on the opening of that. And you and uh, John Sterling, the the chapter coordinator here in Atlanta, um, have just built just an amazing, incredible uh, you know, weekly meeting that we all get together for. I'll let you talk more about it and how you got involved with it. But certainly, you know, this is just a, a di- dynamic organization from top to bottom. Yes. So merging vets and players, I, I, I ultimately think that this is a type of environment and this is an organization that any combat veteran, uh, they, they need to find and they need to start getting to be a part of, uh, and not only because I have a biased opinion and uh, a direct connection with it, but being part of the demographic, you know, yeah, I, I have issues and I have problems, you know, talking about losing, you know, Ranger buddies and stuff like that. It gets me. I, I don't let it take over my life, but it does. It, it gets me from time to time. And being around people that I can talk with those uh, particular moments in my life where, you know, I might be feeling down or whatever in in that setting, it helps. 
but uh, being able to collaborate with NFL players, and it's not just NFL, uh, we've expanded and it's now all athletes. Anybody with a professional athlete, they had an identity once in their lifetime. Just like when you're in a military, you have an identity and then you take off the uniform. Now you have to circumvent into a different lifestyle and transition into that new identity. Well, being in special operations, being a member of the elite 75th Ranger Regiment, I had to take off my identity. And for a while, I had to struggle with it because now I'm in the conventional army where a lot of people, uh, it, it just seems to be apparent that nobody really uh, cares as much uh, to be on the elite level. Now, I mean, they do have uh, great care of being in the service, but, um, you know, going from the elite down to just a conventional army, uh, it, it was a huge eye opener. Uh, but merging vets and players, you know, the, the similarities that combat veterans and professional athletes have, uh, there, there's trauma similarities. There is uh, emotional similarities. They, they even have types of trauma uh, as far as being referred to as PTS. So um, it, it's, it's a very similar lifestyle and it's a very similar uh, transition when they leave. They leave, uh, you know, on good terms, and they also leave on bad terms. They leave on uh, very emotional terms, just like in the military. You get in a, uh, an accident like, like I did, and it ends your career. Guys in the NFL, guys in the NBA or whatever, they get a major injury, they lose their career. Now they lose their identity. So there's struggles with it, and that's why we come together. Uh, we get in an MMA environment. And we do a workout and we sweat together and then we get in a little fireside chat and we just talk about our issues and our problems. And then we have programs that we either associate with or that are in the room to help develop those people and get them in the, the relationships they need to get over it. And and for those you know who haven't had the opportunity to be part of it, it's just it's inspiring. It's humbling. Um, it, it's It's amazing how. You can get into a room with another veteran and, and it almost, it's like a security blanket. It's like a comfort. You know, it's one thing if you, if you're in the grocery store and you're bumping into somebody who happens to be a veteran, you just, Hey, how's it going? You know, nice to meet you. But when you get in that environment and you know, people are there to share their experiences, uh, it's, there's an immediate connection. Like you can't deny it. I felt it from the very first meeting that we had here in Atlanta. Um, and, and every week I've shown up, it's, it's the same thing. It's just great to shake hands and, and hug somebody and say, hey, man, you know, hey, girl, I'm here for you. You know, we're, we're all on the same team still. We're all fighting the same fight. And, you know, you and I have shared some of that. No, absolutely. Uh, getting around some of these individuals that they – then keeping that that feeling or that emotion bottled up. I mean, we had one individual. It took 25 years for them to open up about a traumatic event in their life and how significant it was uh, negatively impacting their life. And then to come in and to share that one with with complete strangers, but those complete strangers are a very welcoming, uh, you know, embodiment of what they are. And that is a veteran themselves or a fellow athlete themselves. So, I mean, it's 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 inspiring being in a room when on the very first instance you can meet somebody and they open up like that. Or on the other token is you can be around a professional athlete and on the very first time of them being in the room, they can say, you know what? 
I've been given an opportunity and I won particular accolades. Uh, so I'm going to take and I'm going to donate those accolades to this organization being the very first time of being here instead of taking and giving it to my own organizations that I'm, you know, already engaged with. So, I mean, there's lots of inspiration that happened in the room and it, it's on a daily basis. I mean, last night, you know, uh, we had a, a gentleman uh, overcome uh, some shortcomings in his life and, and just seeing how he perked up on, on a small victory uh, that he's gone over is just it's all inspiring. It really is. You know, and I can't say enough about merging vets and players. And, um, you know, one of the big things and, and I've said this about the organization, it, it's a lifestyle choice now. Like it, it's me being at those those meetings every Tuesday and those workouts that we do together. Um, it, it keeps me centered, you know, it keeps me focused. Uh, there's a second family there uh, of people that, you know, uh, need you and you need them. It's It's kind of parasitic in that sense, but in a good way, I mean. Absolutely. And we, you know, we expand that by we give achievements. You know, there's rites of passage within the MVP environment. Uh, you know, uh, like last night, we were able to give our very first participant, Mark Zeno, uh, <laughs> his first rite of passage within the MVP program. And that was the uh, the T-shirt that was earned. Uh, but I mean, there's, you know, those small achievements throughout to keep people engaged uh, and, and to hopefully keep impacting their life. Uh, and drawing them back in to to be with us because uh, we're we're in it for life. I mean, this is basically a new family for everybody. Well, Jeremy, listen. I mean, what you've went through in your career, obviously, um, it's we could spend another hour easily cataloging everything about your deployments and everything that you've done. But certainly, um, the transition you made throughout your career and then the post transition into um, not only retirement but you know being part of merging vets and players. It's it, it's a fantastic story, brother. You know, I, I love diving a little bit more. You and I have gotten a chance to talk a lot, but, you know, hearing you kind of recount your military career um, certainly gives me a newfound appreciation for everything that you've done. So I certainly, you know, appreciate all your candor and honesty, brother. All right, Mark. I appreciate it, man. Uh, Jeremy Tindall, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks, bud. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, <laughs> rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre. And every day, we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts.